Hi there, good morning. Thanks for joining me today and uh, hope you've got your cup of coffee as we continue to dive back into uh, our sequence of end times events. And uh, from the beginning, we talked about the rapture some time back. We talked about Israel's place at the center of biblical prophecy. Uh, we have been talking, uh, we did talk about Ezekiel 38 and 39, and now we've moved on to uh, this last period of time uh, before Christ's coming that will ultimately culminate in Christ's coming. And then a new heavens and new earth and all of the things that the book of Revelation and other places in scripture allude to, Isaiah and so on. So that being said, yesterday we uh, looked at Daniel chapter 9, uh, in particular verses uh, 20, 24 to 27. We kind of read them and began to dive into them. And in connection with that, I'd like today to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew 24, where uh, Jesus himself, years later, uh, Daniel was written back in the 500s and uh, BC, and of course in, in uh, the New Testament era as Jesus now begins to um, share with his disciples what those things are going to look like that pertain to the last days, uh, it's instructive for us to connect the dots here between what Jesus says uh, in regard to what Daniel had said previously, verifying what Daniel had said as being legit and also being something that spoke of the days yet to come. Uh, in the end. And so um, let me start by just introducing chapter 24 of Matthew. And uh, when Jesus is with his disciples, they're walking through the temple area and the disciples look at the temple and they are just marveling at this beautiful structure that has been built. Uh, Herod the Great has basically taken the temple that was built during Haggai's time in the Old Testament and has aggrandized it. He's built it up. He's turned it into from what was this relatively small temple into a much larger temple and temple area. And it's impressive, and the disciples are impressed by it. And so as they're walking through, Jesus says, you know, essentially, don't be too impressed by this because one day it's all going to be done. It's going to be torn down. Not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples ask him uh, three questions, essentially. They say, uh, tell us when these things will be, verse 3, uh, and what will be... Um, uh, will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And so Jesus begins to answer that question. And the very first thing that he says uh, is this in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And then he goes on to give a description of wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and such. Uh, a passage, this passage here that he begins to unfold what's going to come, these next few verses directly parallel Revelation chapter 6. Uh, and so it's good to read those two things together. But to stay kind of on point right here, um, Jesus tells them right off the bat, the first thing that will characterize the times leading up to his coming is going to be deception. Not just general deception, people lying about things, but a spiritual deception where the point will be to mislead people away from following the true Christ, Jesus, and following a false Christ. Or, uh, as, as uh, John says in his first epistle, there are many antichrists that have gone out into the world. There's a spirit of antichrist that ultimately is about the business of leading people away from the true Christ, Jesus Christ, uh, and seeking to mislead and deceive. And so Jesus here says that's going to be extremely prevalent. As a matter of fact, that is the first characteristic that he brings to the fore as he describes that time. Well, if we jump down to verse 15, we see that the ultimate example of this in the last days uh, revolves around somebody that the Bible calls Antichrist. And here's where Jesus connects the dots with what Daniel 
said in the Old Testament. Um, in uh, verse 14, he talks about this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor, uh, no, nor shall there ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Therefore, if anyone, or then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you these things beforehand. And he goes on. Of course, uh, my invitation to you is always to read the entire passage and everything. But for time's sake, I'm going to focus on a few things. Uh, first off, uh, notice in verse 15, Jesus says that whoever reads this, let him understand it. Actually, it's, it's, it's likely Matthew who adds that parenthetical there. But the point being that we should understand whether Matthew wrote it or Jesus said it, uh, you know, the point is the Holy Spirit has put this here for us to understand that we have a responsibility to understand it. So to the best of our knowledge, we want to do that. Jesus says here, when you see the abomination of desolation of, spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place. Um, the holy place speaks of the temple and the place where uh, worship of God takes place. And ultimately, the holy place would refer here to what is known as the Holy of Holies, that place where in the original temple, the Ark of the Covenant stood, that place in the tabernacle, the very first version of the temple, the tabernacle that God had given Moses the designs for, that holiest place within the heart of, the temp of that tabernacle was called the Holy of Holies. That's where the very presence of God dwelt on earth as he led his people through the wilderness. Uh, and even in Solomon's temple for a time, the, uh, the, the presence of God flooded the temple and was filled with smoke and everything. It was just this dramatic scene where God's presence, presence dwelt with him in the temple until about the time of Ezekiel when the presence of God left uh, the temple there. Uh, and sadly, business as usual continued. Well, that was how things were in Jesus' time. Uh, God was not dwelling in the temple as uh, he had in the Old Testament, although Jesus himself now was dwelling in the temple area. Um, that all said, um, Jesus here is speaking of a time when, uh, when an abomination uh, will be set up in the holy place. Now, uh, with that in mind, let me invite you to turn back to Daniel chapter 9. Now again, the whole idea here at the end times is that it is pervasive, uh, uh, deception is pervasive, and in particular, it revolves around somebody in particular that has been foretold for a long time uh, that will come to ultimately be the object of, uh, of all of that uh, worship that leads people away from Jesus, and that is the Antichrist that we began to look at yesterday in the book of Daniel. Uh, again, if you remember, there were 70 weeks determined in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, there were 70 weeks determined for Daniel's people and the, their holy city. Uh, speaking of Israel, again, is the focal point. And uh, the first 69 weeks, the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, together form a period of time of 69 weeks. Not weeks of days, but weeks of years. 
Uh, again, I think I recommended uh, Sir Robert Anderson's book, The Coming Prince. It's not an easy read, but he does do all the work on sort of figuring out what this is uh, describing here. Um, and as far as how a year was measured in the Jewish calendar and those kinds of things. Interestingly, as an aside, um, when we notice here uh, in verse uh, 26, after that 62 weeks, in other words, the seven weeks, then the 62 weeks after that period of time, in verse 26, it mentions here that Messiah uh, shall be cut off, but not for himself. In other words, he will be killed, but not because of anything he did. Okay, in other words, he didn't bring this upon himself per se, it was for somebody else or some other crime. Uh, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end of it shall be a flood, until the end of war desolations are determined. So a couple of things are in view here, and then there's a big space after these things. Uh, Messiah comes after the 69 weeks, the 7, and the 62, and then arrival of Messiah. One thing I want to point out, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey on Palm Sunday, what you may not be aware of is that there were many times in the Gospels prior to this where they tried to make him king, but his time was not yet. On this particular day, Jesus literally sets up the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 where he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Uh, and, and Zechariah's description of this is, this is how Messiah will arrive. This is how your savior will come. And so Jesus sets it up. Now the day he chose to do it was not random. The day he chose to do it was exactly the day that was described right here. As a matter of fact, uh, in the beginning of this prophecy, um, or uh, verse 25, I should say more specifically, Daniel is told by Gabriel, no one understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 69 weeks from the day that that command is given to the day the Messiah arrives, okay? Now again, I'll, I'll, I'll appeal to Sir Robert Anderson's book on this, but essentially from that command to rebuild Jerusalem, which was on, uh, what was that, April 14, 445 BC, until the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem, which was on April 6, 32 AD, there is this period of time that is described by Daniel. And, uh, just because I'm a nerd, because I like this kind of stuff. Any of you who have heard this unfolded or waiting for me to say exactly how many days this was, it was actually 173,880 days exactly from the day that the command was given to the day that Jesus rode into town. That was math that could have been figured out literally from the day that that command happened as recorded in the book of Nehemiah chapter two. Uh, when Artaxerxes Longimanus go ahead, uh, goes ahead and gives the command to go ahead and rebuild the city Okay, not just the temple, but the city, as Daniel prophesied. When that command was given, later on, in the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah appears earlier in your Bible, but chronologically, Nehemiah appears after Daniel. And so when that command is given, you could have started counting days on the calendar. And you would have arrived at April 6, 32 AD. This is why Jesus chose that day. This is why his time had not yet come prior when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the Pharisees and the scribes tried to quiet the crowds who were crying out the Messianic Psalms and the songs, you know, Hosanna, blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord uh, and all of that, they, they wanted to silence them. And Jesus interestingly says, if they're quiet, the stones themselves would cry out. Why? Because this was the day that had been long marked out as the day that the Messiah would arrive. They should have known it. 
So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, just prior to that event where they're singing and laying down the palm branches and their clothes and everything, as he rode into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, it says that he wept over the city because they had rejected him. And even though God, had, he had longed to gather them together as a, as a, a mother hen brings her chicks and such, uh, they would not have it. And so now destruction would come upon them because they did not know this their day. Now back in Daniel chapter 9, it talks here about how there is the, uh, the prince who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That speaks of uh, Titus Vespasian coming and destroying the temple and the city in 70 AD. And thus the dispersion of the diaspora of the Jews happens after that point. And they, uh, they are dispersed amongst the earth. The temple is destroyed. And uh, up until um, the time, uh, well, and, and I should say, even through our time, there still remains no temple in Jerusalem. And so therefore the worship that the Jews practice is not truly the biblical worship that was prescribed for them. And so they've been without the ability to do this for about 2000 years. And so it is uh, 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 a terrible thing for them to have to experience, but it is fulfillment of what Daniel the prophet prophesied. Now, that makes our next uh, thing we want to look at extremely, uh, it connects the dots very well. Notice in verse 27, um, then, now this jumps ahead, even future to us today. This event that we're about to move into verse 27 uh, has not happened yet, but this is something we're going to look for. Notice what Daniel says. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring to end the sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be the one who makes desolate. Abomination. Um, it doesn't specifically say he's going to set up a, a thing in the temple like Jesus more further describes how it will play out. But here the hint is given that one of the signs that we will recognize that this one whom Daniel is prophesying about has arrived is that he will sign a covenant with Israel for seven years a week. Uh, as we said, it's a week of years. And so he will sign a seven-year covenant with Israel. And because Daniel makes the connection here of the fact that there is going to be uh, a breaking of this covenant in the middle of the weeks, and there shall be an abomination, an end of sacrifice and offerings. Well, Israel can't offer sacrifices and offerings at this time. So that must mean that there will be a temple built yet future. Matter of fact, back in, in Matthew 24, notice what Jesus says. He says that when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, uh, like Daniel described, then flee. Okay, in other words, this is a time that you need to run for your lives. Now, by the way, in, in Matthew 24, he's speaking specifically to Israel. Make sure that your flight, you know, hope that your flight doesn't happen on the Sabbath. Well, that doesn't matter to anybody but the Jews. I mean, they're clearly in view throughout the passage. But this temple is also spoken of, this temple that will be built uh, by, uh, uh, during that period of time, putting these things together, it is presumed that the Antichrist, as part of this treaty, will allow them to build their temple. Uh, there's a lot of Jews in Israel that want to build the temple. There are designs for the temple that you can look up online. There's lots of descriptions of, of, of how this may look. There's, there's a philosophy behind how they want the temple to be used and, and how it's uh, going to be a, a, a very different from the, uh, the place of the worship of the true God in the Old Testament. This is going to be a much more ecumenical kind of a structure from what some people are wanting to design it to be. Well, it will become a place where the Antichrist ultimately will go into it and will set himself up uh, uh, as, as Paul will describe. I invite you to turn to Second Thessalonians uh, 
uh, chapter 2 for a moment here. Um, and uh, we'll look at this here in a little bit of detail before we wrap today. But uh, Paul here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, this is one of the reasons why I think that they were looking for not only the second coming, but even the rapture in the time of Paul, uh, not in the 1800s, uh, as is sometimes you know, kind of put out there as, as, as being the beginning of this pre-trib rapture view. Uh, I think it actually goes back to the time of Paul, and I think it's passages like this that bear that out. So, um, so that being said, Paul here says, regarding the time when Christ returns, you're not in it yet. Don't be troubled. They thought they were because of the persecutions that were happening, but that's not where they were yet. And so Paul goes on now to describe what it will look like at the time. And he goes on in verse three, let no one deceive you by any means. Again, deception will be characteristic of the last days. And even here, Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away or the apostasy comes and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Paul, in the three weeks he spent in Thessalonica with this church, planting it and helping it to, to get its feet under it as a new a group of believers, talked about things like this as with new believers, which is why I feel it's so important for us to spend time talking about it. If new believers should be introduced to this kind of thing, certainly all believers should be introduced to these kinds of things. Well, Paul here says that the Antichrist, this man of sin, the son of perdition, will go into the temple. The temple was standing during Paul's time, but in 70 AD it was destroyed. It has to be there in order for this to be fulfilled. There will be another temple built in Israel. Well, how can that be? The Dome of the Rock is on the Temple Mount right now. How can they do it? Well, I would invite you to go ahead and open up your Bible, not right now, but take time to, to read in uh, Revelation 11, where John is told about this, uh, his need to measure out this area that is set aside for both the t uh, uh, this holy area, but then also this area outside of it, sort of maybe next to it, that's for the Gentiles. Uh, it's very possible that one of the things the Antichrist will do is present a scenario where the temple can be built next to the Dome of the Rock without touching the Dome of the Rock uh, as part of this bringing together of world religions. We'll talk more about that as we look at the Antichrist and the false prophet next time. But let me finish with this section here today. Um, so he's going to sit in the temple and declare himself to be God. I will connect. Hey, shh, shh, shh. sorry, life at the kitchen table. So um, in Revelation 13, we're told about, a little spoiler for next time, but the Antichrist or the beast that comes out of the sea and the false prophet, the second beast that comes out of the earth. Uh, which is just speaking of coming out of the sea of nations and coming out from among the people or however that may end up looking. But the false prophet is given authority much like the Antichrist and he has an idol to the Antichrist built and put in the temple and he even has the power to bring this image to life. And so um, there is going to be this grand deception during that time that again we'll talk more about. But here in this passage in, in uh, 2 Thessalonians, Paul talks about how the Antichrist will go into the temple, declare himself to be God, and, and demand to be worshipped above all that is called God. In other words, he will claim to be numero uno. He needs to be worshipped above anything else that is the object of desire 
uh, desire of spiritual worship and such. Uh, much like a Caesar, very reminiscent of the Caesars, um, but this is what it's going to look like. Um, now, notice again, there's also a falling away, an apostasy that happens. Some have seen the rapture in that. I think really what, what is being uh, portrayed here is the idea that there are going to be many who will depart from uh, the truth and will, in fact, uh, later on in the same passage, Paul makes the case that there will be many uh, who will, in fact, uh, fall away and, and, and ultimately believe a delusion, not believing the truth, but accepting the lie. But the idea here is that there will be tremendous deception. Many will fall away during that time under the, under the time of the Antichrist. Now, I'll just continue here uh, in um, uh, verse 6. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. In other words, there is something standing in the way of these events opening up. And Paul here says, uh, referring to this restrainer until he is taken out of the way, that is the question of some, uh, that, that is the subject of some question and discussion. Uh, depending on your view of the rapture, you may have a different view of who is being referred to here. Uh, uh, if there's a, one particular view of the rapture called pre-wrath, uh, that has uh, gained some popularity for sure. And uh, in that view, if I understand it correctly, Michael the Archangel is in view here. The great defender of Israel will be removed out of the way, and then the Antichrist will appear and go into the temple and such. Um, I have a pre-tribulational view, which uh, uh, informs kind of my sense of, of who may be referred to here. And I happen to think that who Paul is referring to is, in fact, the Holy Spirit working through the church. And when the church is raptured out, as he described earlier in his writings to the Thessalonians, when that time comes when we're snatched away, not that the Holy Spirit won't be in the world anymore, but he won't be working through the church anymore because the church will not be here. And therefore, it will be easy for the Antichrist to, to be made known. It'll be easy for him to go about the things he's going to do in those first three and a half years until he goes into the temple and, uh, and declares himself to be God, beginning what is called the Great Tribulation Period. Those things can all happen very, uh, pretty much wide in, the, uh, in the wide open if the church is not here uh, to sort of point him out and declare openly who this is and all. They'll eventually all come to realize that those who uh, will ultimately come to faith during that time um, but if the church is here, that becomes a harder sell for a lot of people. And so I, I just tend to think reasons like that uh, uh, seem, to spell, seem to build a pretty good case. And so um, until he's taken out of the way, in verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And I'll finish. And there, and for this reason, God will send send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, and that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And as Paul finishes that section, he says, as these things unfold, and as we look for the Lord's coming, comfort yourself in the knowledge that He's going to come. So. Um, Paul says here that the workings of this lawless one, this Antichrist, are according to the power of Satan with all lying signs and wonders. Uh, the beast who is ultimately the Antichrist, an assassination attempt will be made on his life, and he will come back and recover from it, and all the world will rally around him. Who is like the beast, they'll cry out. We'll look at that more tomorrow. But I want to stop there for today because I, I keep saying these things will be 15 or 20 minutes, and I've been terrible about keeping my word on that. So... I'm going to go ahead and stop here for today, but we'll pick it up here tomorrow or next time 
and uh, and um, and uh, likely finish our uh, series through the sequence of end times events. And so, thanks again for watching. And if you have questions or comments, you're always welcome to uh, go ahead and comment uh, on YouTube or Facebook where this is posted, and uh, be glad to interact on that as well. Again, we're giving kind of an overview here, so there's a lot of again nuances that we're not covering for time's sake. But my my intention again here is to prod you to become a student of, of prophecy as you grow as a student of the Word of God as a whole. So let me pray us out, and then we'll look forward to meeting again to discuss these things next time. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for spelling out so many of these things that are going to happen in the days to come so that we might recognize the times in which we live. Help us not to err like the Pharisees and not be able to uh, recognize the times in which we're living, but rather to recognize them clearly and for that to spark in us just a deep desire to draw closer to you than ever before. Father, for all of those who don't know you personally and are maybe hearing these things, help them, Father, in their own hearts to recognize that there has never been a time more important than right now to get right with you uh, and to put their trust in Jesus, who ultimately came into the world primarily to pay for our sins and to make right that which was wrong, to, to restore that which was destroyed through sin, through our sin. And Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to pay for our sins so that we by faith might be saved, simply putting our trust in you and you changing us now and making us new from the inside out. Even as Paul himself would say and, uh, and to, to the Corinthians that, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. What a glorious truth. Thank you for this. And thank you for the glorious hope that you've instilled in us, knowing that one day Jesus will come and snatch us away and one day we'll return with him as he sets up his kingdom and we'll be able to just enjoy and worship and spend time uh, just rejoicing in the presence of God forever. How good that is. And we thank you for this blessed hope. And we pray that you'd help us to continue to delve into these things and to understand them more fully. Again, that we might recognize and be thrilled and excited at the prospect of just how close we are. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.